five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello, space enthusiasts. Welcome to the Space Business Podcast. So, do you know what a space elevator is? If you don't, it's sort of what the words imply. Except, we hope, cheesy elevator music. The idea for such an elevator to space has been around for over 100 years and it regularly appears in science fiction. In real life, Michael Lane from Liftport in Seattle has looked at how to bring this into reality for the last 20 years or so. So let's learn about the current status and outlook of space elevators. As always, feel free to email us your questions or comments on the episode at spacebusinesspodcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com or post them on our Twitter, which is podcast underscore space. And if you do enjoy the show, please leave us a review and or rating on your favorite podcast app so more people can find the podcast. Now here are a couple of short messages about our sponsors, then please enjoy my conversation with Michael Lane. My name is Raphael Rodkin and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I am an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Everybody, I'm here with Michael Lane. Welcome, Michael, to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Thank you. I appreciate it. So, uh, Mike, is, is it Michael? Michael, by the way, what do you uh, prefer? Michael, if you don't mind, please. Yeah, of course. So, Michael, you have been in space for for quite a while, and it, it's funny. Usually, when I say that to somebody, you know, it's been careers like somebody has been with one of the big satellite services operators forever, or somebody has been with NASA forever. But that's not your case. Tell us, tell us about your story with space. My story is uh, pretty unusual. I mean, I took a very, I say it. it it's a crooked path to space, right? So I was I was a very poor student in high school, uh, mostly because I skipped a lot of schools. So um, I went from high school into the Marine Corps, which is a kind of an unusual path. I'm pretty smart. I wound up in the Marine Corps, surprisingly, I, I worked on spreadsheets in the early, early days. So um, I, I'm pretty happy about captain of mine who taught me a lot of stuff. And my first job out of the Marine Corps after four years uh, was investment management. So I did that for several years, had signatory control over $4 million and advisory influence on another $40 million. So that was a pretty rare spot to be in. I mean, those are numbers that are good numbers today, but we're talking back in, you know, 1990, 1993 mm-hmm. range. So, I mean, $4 million was a lot of money back in 1990, 95. I, uh, Went on to Boston University. Hate to say I dropped out because it sounds like I quit or ran out of financial aid. Uh, so didn't didn't graduate at B. 
BU, got to my almost my senior year. So that's a little frustrating. Came back home and started an internet company, which was also a pretty unusual thing to do. That was in 1995, 90. So that was the right time, clearly, for starting as a company. Yeah, no, it was. It was it was the very, very, very earliest days of the internet. So who's who's left of those days that were uh, started around me? Um, Amazon. Amazon, Wikipedia, not quite PayPal. They they actually started after we did. Yeah. Uh, and Craigslist. Like those are the only three like name brand organizations that were still that are still around since 1998 or so. And the internet company worked out okay. I mean, not great. The real estate company worked out much better. And in 2001, I kind of found myself in this very interesting position where I could have been retired. Like I had enough you know, personal capital because of my real estate. The internet company had closed, but because of my real estate, I had enough personal capital to effectively be retired in my early 30s. That's a really weird spot to be in. It's an unusual spot to be in. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started space. So I didn't really start space. I'm, I'm 53 now. Uh, I didn't really start space until I was in my early 30s. What, what triggered you at that point in time to, to look at space? Um, so it had always been this kind of background interest between spreadsheets, early days in the Marine Corps, coding, early days. Uh, with my best friend. I'm a terrible coder, but I was exposed to it really, really early on. And the investment management work that I did was on big infrastructure, like telephone systems, communication systems, infrastructure. And so all of those things kind of started coming together. But I used to skip school to watch space shuttles launch and land on television. Uh, mm-hmm. Like those were those were things I really, I, I'd been interested in space uh, really since my earliest days reading science fiction. I'm a big, I'm a big reader. I read a lot of science fiction. We'll, we'll come uh, back to that for sure. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, so, you know, here I am in my early thirties, kind of trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. And I'm like, what do I care about? I care about space. Well, what that leads to the next question of what, you know, what's my role? Because I'm not mm-hmm. a technician. I'm not an engineer. You know, what could, what can I Contribute. Contribute. Exactly the word. Exactly the word. What can I contribute? So um, I was really interested in the idea of commercial space, mostly because of Heinlein. We just, you know, because as an influence, commercial development in space from Heinlein is a, is a recurring theme. So I'm like, all right, well, what does it mean to do commercial development of space? And, and, and we're talking 20 years ago. That wasn't a common conversation. I posted this message board. Remember the days when message boards were relevant? Um, I posted a message board to space.com basically as an open invitation. Who wants to start talking about commercial development? And uh, this guy who eventually became my business partner, uh, Dr. Brad Edwards, he had a contract with NASA, the NASA Institute for Advanced Concepts, to work on the space elevator. And I'm like, that seems wackadoo crazy. I don't really want to meet up with you. I don't really want to chat with you. You know, he was in Seattle. I was in Bremerton. We were only about an hour distance. And so, you know, he bought me lunch. He bought me lunch. And um, lunch turned into dinner. 
And that turned into drinks afterwards. And we were probably in that cheesy little Chinese restaurant for, I don't know, six, seven, eight hours. I mean, they closed the restaurant around us. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated. And and it's not hyperbole to say that that afternoon changed the course of the rest of my life. So Edwards and I started working together. This was in the end of 2001, two and three. He published the final report, I guess, in 2003. We didn't, we didn't really get along particularly well. And so when the contract came to the NASA contract came to an end for a lot of reasons, we decided to not continue working together. There was a there's a fair amount of frustration and animosity between us at that point. We had very different opinions on how to move forward. And so I started Liftport, my uh, my commercial space elevator company, in 2003, four, five, six, and seven, uh, still doing all that work. We had a pretty good-sized team, and we worked on kind of two main areas. We worked on um, material sciences, carbon nanotubes, uh, nanotechnology, and we worked on robotics. So, so, so Mike, let's take a step back here because sure, obviously sure. we're sort of like a non-technical podcast reaching, mm-hmm. trying to reach a broad audience. So you mentioned space elevator and, and, and that just sounds very interesting. And, you know, we can't suppose for a minute that everybody here knows what a space elevator is. So can you just give us a the, the, the quick summary on what a space sure. elevator is? Sure. So there's two kinds of elevators. The one that is the most well-known and I would say arguably famous is the uh, the earth elevator or i refer to it as a centripetal elevator so imagine you have a ball on a string and you're spinning it over your head the string in the middle stays straight right so now expand that to an earth-sized system the earth is rotating you have a counterweight Mm -hmm. a satellite deep out in in space with an extraordinarily long strong string Mm -hmm. the mechanics of that are the same the string stays straight. So if you can expand that string from an Earth-based system, you can climb up and down that string. You would have to have an extraordinarily strong material. In this case, 20 years ago, the assumption was carbon nanotubes, but you could mechanically climb up and down that ribbon. So that's the Earth elevator. Okay, let's just stay on that for a couple of minutes, just explore this a little bit more detail for the benefits of the listeners. So I actually, I should have studied up more on this before our <laughs> <before laughs> talk. I got but here we go. I'm, I'm going to sort of like, you know, grasp at strings and sort of like my incomplete knowledge of orbital mechanics and all of that and physics. So I'm assuming that obviously the, the, the you want us to stay in one place above Earth. So that means you would have to go out at least to what we call a geostationary orbit. And I guess beyond because you need to counterbalance all of the weight Correct. of of that string, right? And it's because exactly. it's a very long string. It's actually heavier than one would imagine, right? Which is quite uh, a way out, it's right? It's actually because... lighter than most people expect. Oh, that's, that's okay. Let's talk about it in a second. That's actually also interesting. But so um, just to remind people, geostationary orbit, that's actually quite far away. So the International Space Station is at about, I think, 408 or so kilometers altitude. Geostationary orbit is, correct me if I'm wrong, I think 35,786 kilometers. Right. Yep. So it's a long way. It's, I mean, it's, it's basically, right, the, the circumreference of, of the Earth at the equator, right, um, out there. And then, as you said, um, we have to actually go beyond that because of the, the counterweight effect. So it's, correct. it's a long way out, but that's necessary so we can stay in one basically in the same spot above Earth. And I think then for for other sort of orbital orbital mechanics reasons, I'm assuming this would be done above the 
equator, right? All of that is exactly correct. Yeah, yeah. The original plan, the baseline is that it would be built on a ship out in the ocean. The area that we particularly liked was directly south of San Diego, directly west of Quito, Ecuador, about 2,000 miles, uh, 2,000 kilometers out from Quito, Ecuador. There are three or four locations in the world that are particularly interesting. They have... um, you know, low clouds, low lightning, the equator, everybody always worries about storms. Most storms don't cross over the equator, so you've got a pretty benign mm-hmm. environment there. But that's that's where we want it to be. You know, we looked at land-based locations. First, not to offend anybody, but name a politically stable equatorial nation. Singapore. Uh, econ- economically stable. We had looked at uh, Ecuador and Peru and that region. You know, they're, they're volcanically volcanically active. very active, right? So so really, um, it made a lot more sense to start putting basing this thing out in the ocean, which is one of the reasons why how, how we got our name as a port to imply lift. Right. Right, yeah. Yeah, so those are that's kind of the earth elevator version. That's uh, funny, just to finish up on, on, on location, and I promise we'll come back to science fiction, but it's actually we come back to science fiction usually at the end, but I just remember I'm, I'm a very, um, you know, I, I love science fiction and I keep, I read science fiction all the time. And there's actually a few science fiction works where elevators appear, right? And the one that I remember is, I don't know if you ever read John Scalzi. There's a book called Old Man's War, and there's a, they call it the Beanstalk, but yep. it's basically an elevator, and it departs yep. from Nairobi. Yep. 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 There's a lot of fiction out there with the elevator. The the two that are kind of the most famous because they really popularized the idea in the public conscious consciousness is um, Web Between the Worlds and Fountains of Paradise. Arthur C. Clarke actually sat down with one of the earliest pioneers of the elevator, um, a guy named Jerome Pearson. Pearson died just maybe four months ago, but they were contemporaries. They they talked to each other you know, somewhat frequently, and they helped make the elevator possible. Like I give them a lot of credit for kind of sparking the public imagination. There's a huge elevator culture in in Japan, mostly because of anime. So yeah, it's it's been in, it, I, somebody kept a list. I think there's at least 50 books, 50 stories with elevators in it, including things like South Park and Numbers. I was in the TV show Numbers, like just like a 10 second blip. Yeah. Veronica Mars, South Park, like a bunch of stuff. You just see it every once in a while. Not as not as common as, as we, as we saw it, you know, years ago when the Edwards and I were working together, but it's in a lot of science fiction, a lot of uh, video games, especially tons of video games. Yeah, so it's really captured people's minds. It's interesting, and you just remembered me because you were talking with sort of the people who initially thought about it, and I, I remember we, we should kind of very briefly touch upon the history. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the first one of the, at least one of the first people who thought about it was Konstantin Tsiolkovsky. He is credited as the first one. Yeah. Yeah. So for folks that don't know that that kind of history, Silvskovsky, I mean, arguably, they, he is the uh, father of rocketry, uh, yeah. modern rocketry. And, you know, here's this guy, popular legend, right? I, you know, nobody has proof of this. It's not like we we're like filming, you know, people back yeah. then. But in the 1880s, 1890s, here's this Russian school teacher in a two-room school 
school room in uh, in the harsh winter environment, drawing rocket equations on a chalkboard and trying to figure out the rocket equation. I mean, I find that I find the idea of drawing out the rocket equation on a chalkboard a hundred years ago, 130 years ago, just to be absolutely mind boggling. Right. And so one of the things he came up with are the original equations for, for what is now known as the space elevator. So Russia really had the head start. Um, Siloskovsky really started it. Another guy who isn't really well known is a guy named Artsutinov, Yuri Artsutinov. He's credited with independently inventing the elevator. It's interesting. The elevator has been independently invented at least three times, maybe four or five. Okay. Um, so Sudanov, he has this, um, his father is a political prisoner in Russia. So he is deemed kind of an untrustworthy character. So he can't get a good engineering job, even though he's a good engineer. So he publishes in uh, basically a, a child's magazine. Uh, like in America, we have Boy's Life. It's for um, like uh, Boy Scouts of America has mm-hmm. this program, sure. right? So he published in the Soviet equivalent of Boy's Life on the space elevator. So that's another kind of independent invention. And then Jerome Pearson, the guy I just mentioned again. Uh, but there's about... 70 years, 60 years that separate Siloskovsky to Artsutinov, and there's another 20 or 25 years that separate Artsutinov from Pearson. Independent, verifiably independent invention of the elevator. But yeah. Did people always come out more or less in the same spot of how it should be done, or was there sort of like wings? Yeah, no, they're really similar. They're really similar. You You get more nuance so Edwards and the rest of our team, like we had the we had the advantage of having 130 years of prior work to look at. We had the advantage of looking at a bunch of science fiction. We had the advantage of um, you know better modeling software. But but ultimately the basic idea hasn't really changed very much. You have a ball and a string, spinning it over your head. The string in the middle stays straight. Now the variations sometimes include. Um, Prior to our work, prior to Liftport's work and Edwards' work, a lot of the science fiction used a great big captured asteroid as the counterweight. Like, we think that's wackadoo crazy. Like, that's a terrible decision because if something goes wrong, you're just going to you're gonna create a dinosaur's nightmare. Oh, Roger, we'll create an impact on Earth, is what you're saying. Right, right. So we think that's a bad plan. Um, so, you know, so, so early science fiction and early uh, calculations Calculations hypothesize a really, really large natural counterweight. We mm-hmm. don't, we don't have anything like that. So, uh, you know, you you were mentioning, you know, you gotta go beyond, you gotta go by, beyond the um, geostationary geostationary orbit. point. So it's a simple, it's a simple balance equation. The longer the string, the smaller the counterweight. And if you have an extremely long string, you don't need a counterweight. Any counterweight because the last point of the sp- the last point of the string will effectively be the counterweight. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. Right. I'm assuming, obviously, you guys looked at specific sort of designs and everything. I mean, what are you guys assuming? How far would you go out beyond geostationary orbit? So the Edwards reference design was about a hundred thousand kilometers. Quite a way. Quite a quite a long ways. Quite a long ways. Um, and that was predicated. Honestly, that needs to be completely rebuilt because. 
20 years ago, you only had some very small rockets available to you, Atlas or Delta rockets. And now we've got Starship, right? So, I mean, really, truly, everything changes after that. Which, which, which is back to the question, sort of like, okay, 100,000 kilometer long string of the material of your choice, whether it's carbon nanotubes or maybe it's something else these days. Yep. I don't know yet. What, yep. How much would it weigh? Because we were, we were confined to building it with a small rocket, we were assuming an extraordinarily long string strong string. Carbon nanotubes may be replaced with graphenes as a different substance, as a different structure. So that is still is very intriguing. And then having, you know, potential SLS or new Armstrong or Starship as a different launching system, you wind up with a different configuration. So that original 20-year-old document really does need some upgrades. The International Space Elevator Consortium, ISEC.org, they've got more modern work. I, I stopped working on the Earth elevator more than 10 years ago. So okay. uh, there are there are some edits and upgrades to that, but but the basic idea it hasn't changed very much from Siliskovsky. Not not really. Like, you know, details and nuance for sure, but the core idea hasn't really shifted. Okay. And I'm gonna ask just like some more stupid questions just because again, I should have just studied up more on this. But so you, you still obviously need energy to kind of leave Earth, right? The yeah. gravity well of Earth. And so let's say if it just simplistically and stupidly just was a rocket on the string, that obviously would be pointless. So I assume there's somehow the, the energy is guided along the string or something, right? So that you get away from what we call the tyrant the tyranny of the rocket equation. Is that how it works or your view Viewers can't see it, but I've got rockets. I've got robots behind me that what they do is they clamp onto the edges of the string mm -hmm. and climb straight up. It's strictly a mechanical process of climbing. It's kind of like a cockwheel, like railway or something. Yeah, exactly. Okay. We've always described it as a railway railroad to space. Some of the some of Liftport's work was that. You know, the ribbon would be maybe uh, maybe a meter wide, maybe three meters wide. And the robot, what we refer to as the lifter, maybe maybe uh, climb maybe once a week. And we were looking at maybe five tons worth of cargo every week. So a pretty heavy duty lift. And, you know, you got to remember, this predates Fal uh, Falcon. It predates sure. um, all of these new modern rockets. So the idea of uh, five tons a week to space, that was unthinkable, right? There was the, the, the big question is, what are we going to do with all that capacity, all that spare capacity? Now that seems kind of quaint and kind of trivial, right? In, in uh, comparison with Starship capacity. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to ask about this in a second. So with... Um, was there also a plan? Was this strictly for cargo, or was there also a thought you could take people up it with was, this? Or? It was definitely always about people, although uh, later nuanced designs differentiated those. So you'd have one that was focused exclusively on cargo, and it would go a little slower. You have to go faster if you're going to put people on it, which means you're trading out cargo capacity for engine capacity. Mm -hmm. If you're going to put people on it, uh, climbing through the radiation belts is really, 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 really bad. So it takes about a week to climb from the ground to geosynchronous orbit. This is with people or with cargo? It takes a week with, with cargo. We would go much faster with people. But then uh, even much faster, I assume, is, I don't know, is it like a day or two? A or? Day. Yeah, probably a day. Okay, so you, you definitely need like, I don't know, the, the world's best elevator music <laughs> to, 
I mean, you need, you need to have, you know, we call it a Winnebago, right? You need, you need a bathroom, you need a bed, you yeah. need a kitchen, you need, like, it's, uh, you're, you're up there for a little while. And you mentioned a really important point, which I almost forgot to ask you about. You mentioned the radiation belts, but it, the, I mean, that's not the only thing. Sort of, again, we're still talking about the Earth elevator, and I know you're keen to talk about elevators in different places, and I promise we get to that very soon. But so while we're around the Earth, I mean, there's a number of things I can talk about, I could think about, which um, could be dangerous here, right? And, and you mentioned sort of on sort of lower atmosphere already that could be storms or something, right? But you can get around that with the right location. But base debris, uh, radiation, as you mentioned, um, atomic oxygen. I mean, the, all of those, all of those things. Yeah. Lightning, wind, financial systems, political systems. There's so many hazards around the elevator. Like everybody, everybody tends to want to focus on the mechanical processes. I get that. It's a big mechanical system. But we definitely should not ignore, you know, the laws and policies, the outreach, all of all of those other elements are, are super important for the construction and deployment. So debris is one that I'm really concerned about. ISEC did a study a couple of years ago based on debris, the International Space Elevator Consortium. They did a study a couple of years ago. Um, I have some concerns about that study, but it's generally... Gen- generally pretty good. I'm concerned about the activity in space. Uh, Like I said, I moved away from the Earth elevator 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago. When I started working on this thing, uh, there were 400 satellites at all in Mm. space, right? 20 years ago, 21 years ago. We launched almost 800 satellites last quarter, right? Just think about that. Like, let that sink in for a second. Um, We have nearly 4,000 satellites, or maybe we've crossed over 4,000 satellites, but we're in that range. I mean, just Starlink has like, I don't know, 12, 1,300 now. Yeah. So in in 20 years, we've gone from 400 to 4,000, but 20 years from now, uh, the Satellite Industry Association thinks that we're going to have between 90 and 110,000 satellites in the next 15 years. So how does an elevator dodge that? Like, it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to take the hits if you're going to get hit by debris. It's something very different if it's an active satellite that a nation state or a customer is relying on as an active system. Like, that is a different problem. There are different rules, different laws, policies, and norms associated with active assets versus the passiveness of debris elements. So the original plan when there's 400 satellites is you have a ship and the string is attached to the ship and you move the ship and you induce an oscillation on the ribbon. And so you're tracking objects A, B, and C. Object A is coming in at such and such a speed at such and such an altitude. Move the ship 10 feet to the left. Object B is coming in at a different altitude, at a different angle, move it, you know, five feet to the right. If you only have 400 objects to dodge every day, probably you could work out the math to maneuver. If you have 40,000, if you have 80,000, if you have 120,000 satellites, I don't think you're going to be able to do that. I, I just, I think that becomes a really, really tricky problem that you, we don't even have good simulations for now. So I, I am concerned about 
about that as a path. And so far as I know, ISEC hasn't answered that question yet. Uh, they are working on a you know next-gen update to their baseline. So I'm looking forward to that coming out. I think they're going to release that in October at uh, the IAC conference um, in Dubai. So mm-hmm. hopefully they will address some of those those concerns. But I, okay. I, so far they haven't. So far, so far as I know that they haven't solved that one yet. Okay, so let's let's move away from Earth to places which are at least for now less busy. At least for now, which you, which you wanted to talk about anyway. So you have to yeah. talk about the, the Earth elevator. What what other elevators can we should we be thinking about? So, I mean, I think people should consider Martian elevators. We are not. That's not our focus. I think other people should be paying attention to that one. And I think I think there's a science fiction precedent for that, too. I think that's actually in Red, in Red Mars, if I remember. It is. That. It's in Red Mars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Dan Robinson was great. He was That was out when Edwards and I were still doing a lot of our original work. That was all anybody would talk about. They would talk about two things. What if a plane flies into it? This is the Earth elevator. What if a plane flies into the elevator because 9-11 had just happened? And the other thing was in the Red Mars series, the Martian elevator comes down and encircles the planet and causes a great deal of devastation. So I met up with Stan Robinson. It was a long time ago, 15 more, more than 15 years ago. Uh, we had a beer and we talked about, he wrote a he wrote a chapter in our book actually talking about how the science is different the math is different and that the the earth elevator is not in fact going to come down crash and encircle the earth mm. with some like molten canyon around the world or something so he was he was he was a really great sport about that no the elevator i want to talk about the most is uh, the lunar elevator Mm-hmm. I talked about how the Earth is known as a uh, centripetal elevator because of the centripetal force that holds it, mm-hmm. that makes it work. So the lunar elevator is also known as a gravitational elevator because you're using the gravity of the Earth to hold the string straight. So imagine... Oh, it's the Earth-Moon system, basically. And exactly. And you balance out and... Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so you got it, and I can tell visually that you got it, but let me kind of explain. Yeah, yeah yes, please explain. Yes. Okay. So um, again, you've got a long, strong string. This time, you're going to plant the base of the string into the lunar surface at the equator. You're going to pull it back towards the earth, a long ways towards the earth, but not close enough to touch, right? So um, it's 435,000 kilometers between here and there. The Mm -hmm. string is going to be 200,000 or more kilometers. It's going to be a long string. But you are sort of outside all of the dangers that we have just talked about. There's there's no debris, there's no... No debris, there's no nothing. I mean, there's the normal background cosmic stuff that's there. Yeah, and radiation, of course. That's that's fine. The, The value of the earth elevator is getting off of the earth. The value of the lunar elevator is the opposite. It's soft landing on the moon. Uh, You know, we go to Mars so much more frequently than we have the moon because it has an atmosphere. So you can, even though it's a long ways away, you can slow down and stop on Mars. Mm -hmm. You cannot slow down and stop on the moon. It takes a lot of energy to slow down. You need propulsive propulsive like ref, like landing, yeah. Rocket exactly. engines need to so fire. We, so the same mechanical system of getting off of the Earth, you can apply to getting onto the moon. So, so um, basically, a zero energy 
requirement to just slowly drop down to the surface of the moon. Getting off of the moon is pretty easy. You would still use an elevator, but there's a lot of other mechanisms that might work out. With as much activity as is aiming for the moon right now, I'm very concerned about all of the ejecta and the plumes as rockets are landing on the surface of the moon it's gonna it's gonna make a pretty pretty hostile environment even more hostile uh, some of that dust is from each rocket landing and launch on the moon is gonna cause ejecta to sit at ultra high altitudes for months if not years so i think mm. the view of the moon is going to change once we start seeing a lot of rockets there so i think the lunar elevator has a lot of value in soft landing on the moon, mass cargo, mass transit to the moon. But also, uh, you know, we started our designs long before there was such a thing as SLS or new Armstrong or Starship. So we were really, really fixated on soft landing on the moon because no one was talking about going to the moon. Now that lots of people are talking about going to the moon, we've kind of modified our plan a little bit to focus really on that Lagrange point, right? So if the Lagrange point is the gravitational middle midpoint between the Earth and the Moon. We think that we can build an enormous space station there. So you would launch from Earth, coast out to the Lagrange point space station, and take a robot, a lifter, down to the surface of the Moon. We think that's kind of going to be, you know, key to transportation there. So it sounds uh, like a, the, the the lunar gateway, and then just improve. That's that's exactly it, right? That's that's exactly it. We think that. This space station is going to be one of the key assets to um, to going anywhere else in the solar system. Um, in the American West, the pioneering of the American West, uh, St. Louis was one of the last big stops from the East Coast. It was the jump-off point to the West. And we think that because of Delta V numbers, uh, energy required to get to other places, once you're at the Lagrange point, basically the rest of the solar system is almost energetically free. It's 0.14 delta V to get from the Lagrange point to Mars, right? Mm. That's a huge, huge reduction in energy requirements. I mean, you have to be patient, but it doesn't take much to get anywhere else. It's actually cheaper to go from Earth, lower, low Earth orbit, out to the Lagrange point, refuel, and come back to geosynchronous. It's actually cheaper to make that whole distance than it is energetically than it is to go from Leo directly to Geo. I mean, I find that pretty amazing. If you consider that a satellite's long-term value is based on how much fuel it has, the, the, the more you can extend the value of that satellite by having it refueled and having it uh, topped up by, the, by going out to the Lagrange point and back, I mean, that that's going to have impacts, economic impacts. So we think a lot about this space station as it relates to an asset for the rest of the solar system, as it relates to an asset for lunar development, and as it relates to the cislunar reconosphere. The combination of that elevator plus that space station is really important. Yeah, so that's what we've been working on. Really, we had kind of the... 
epiphanies maybe 10 years ago, but the real work only started maybe four years ago through in the last three years that we've been um, kind of reformed as a company. I, I mentioned, you know, we closed the first version of Liftport in 2007, but we reopened the new version of Liftport just a few years ago, 2017. So we've been most, we're a much smaller team now. We were 14 people. We're now four, two full-time, two part-time. I think we're growing. I, I have high hopes that we're going to grow. I, I think we're going to get some good news this summer, but it's a very different kind of company. I would like to get back into doing robotics like we were like we were doing a while ago. And I want to do a lot of materials testing. Those are the two areas mm-hmm. I want to right, get back to. So leaving aside your evaluator for the moment, because you do have this added complexities that we you know, talked about it's more right. it's, a, it's a lot of difference of gravity is very high it's um you have the, the debris and all of that um body lunar to lagrange point elevator in terms of the component technologies that are necessary i mean could we build this now or how far are we away and so no, we we have it now there are at least 11 materials they're all candidates they are all strong enough none of them are what we call goldilocks materials none of them are just right some of them have elongation some of them have have creep problems. Some don't handle light or radiation particularly well. So the expectation is you'll have a core material and a cladding material that uh, covers it. Uh, but yes, absolutely, Raphael. Um, uh, these, this, this elevator can be constructed now with current materials. Uh, have you guys made any sort of calculations how much it would cost? We have some pretty good guesses. In fact, our guesses are probably on the high side because the cost of rocketry has come down. It's probably in the neighborhood of $800 million or less. And things that we thought we were going to have to build ourselves, like a great big ion engine, uh, electric engine, we're not going to have to. We can literally just go to the markets, make a contract to Momentus and um, and contract some of this stuff. So our numbers are probably uh, pretty, pretty steeply on the high side, but uh, we're looking at maybe seven to 12 years, $800 million or less. And there's a lot of stuff that happens between here and there to de-risk the project. So uh, let's take a step back. The, the electric propulsion, what, where is that used? The more string that we can carry to deploy the first ribbon, the stronger and safer the whole system is. We were going to go with a an electric engine to push us from low Earth orbit out to the Lagrange point for deployment. And so at the time, there weren't big solar electric propulsion engines. There are quite a few now. There are more in development. Momentus is making a service out of ferrying customers to where they want to be. We, you know, that was a, that's a hundred million dollar development effort that we don't have to do at all anymore. So when I say, you know, it's an $800 million project, we're keep, we, we made the decision to keep that number, but it's probably very much on the steep high side of things. The string, for example, one of the, one, we've got a quote from a, from a supplier. It's $30 million for the string. I mean, that's yeah. not the hard part. That's not, that's $30 million for the core. That's not the full price. Because, like I said, we have to code it with something. It's not, 
it's not hard. It's not. Hard. It's gotten so much easier in the last ten years, just because the the global interest in space has gotten better. Communications have gotten better. Uh, certainly, financing for space projects has gotten better. And then all the rocketry, all the robotics, you know, made in space technologies are coming online. Tethers Unlimited technologies are coming online. So there are partner organizations, allied organizations that can fill in the gaps that we didn't have 10 years ago. So mm-hmm. when I say that 800 number, don't get fixated on it because it's probably quite a bit less than that. But we chose to keep that number on the just-in-case plan. Well, this may sound ridiculous, but I mean, in a space context where we are, pun intended, used to astronomical numbers, this is yeah. actually not even a very big number. I mean, no. you know, I, I think the, we, we learned from some congressional reports that the estimated cost of one SLS launch is in the order of $2 billion, just yeah. comparison. Yeah, that's in, I mean, I would be embarrassed if I had to report that number, by the way. Like, that's a crazy number. Uh, that's, that's, that's a separate episode of the podcast. Separate episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, but how is, how is the traction? I mean, this, so this is a very interesting concept. Again, it has a very long history, starting with Konstantin Tsiolkovsky. Um, certainly in space, I think probably most people who think about sort of, you know, about space access and how we can get in space are familiar with it. Mm-hmm. How is the interest and the traction with like various entities of this now? Like how does the government, how does NASA think about it and other relevant entities? So I want to be very clear with my language and not step on anybody's toes. We have a very interested ally in the very senior position, but I can't name him because he can't officially work on the project yet. That sounds like I'm I'm fishing. I'm glad this isn't. Sorry for the folks listening. I'm showing Raphael something. So this is the. I'll, I'll explain to the, I'll explain this to you later. But we have a we have a good friend that is really interested mm-hmm. in the project, and that person has made a lot of effort to showcase our tech. We've written reports. These reports have gone to senior officials, FAA, Air Force, Space Force, NASA, DARPA. So our work is getting out into the world. I've participated in several really interesting meetings. Those meetings have not turned into capital yet. I think that they will. We're applying for some stuff. We'll know a little bit more in August. I think we'll be a little bit closer. And I'm, I apologize for being vague, but I can't, I can't risk the, the wrath or frustration of this ally, these allies by naming sure. them. Because then, you know, I, I, I got burned pretty bad during my Earth elevator days. So I am far more careful on my lunar elevator days. So I want to talk about what we've done in the sense of, okay, we accomplished X, Y, and Z. I don't want to talk about, you know, someday maybe we might perhaps possibly accomplish ABC. Sure, and, and, and that's fine. And you look, you know, if th- those exciting things happen, and we are clearly all keeping our fingers crossed for you. We can just have another episode. That's Good. fine. Let's let's do that. Um, maybe we should talk in August. Dot dot dot. <laughs> um, I'll know. I'll, I'll know. make a note in the calendar to follow up with you. Yeah, and, uh, I'll, I'll know again. a lot more. August and September should be pretty fun months for me. You can tell I'm smiling, but until I have it, I can't talk about it. Understood. Hold, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Yeah. I do want to talk about it for a little bit more though, like things I can talk about. Right. So we have a good plan. We're very close to releasing an offering to accredited investors. So that's coming soon. You know, everybody. All 
always focuses on the tech of this, but you know, it's it's a it's a good business plan as well as a good technology, right? That you know, in, in the office behind me, I have about forty or so patentable technologies in in climbing robots, in communications, and algorithms, in material sciences. So the elevator is the lens that we focus our research on, but the business has to make money beyond the fantasy and the big idea of the elevator. So, you know, we've had to be very accommodating to the investor class about, you know, what's our return on investment? How do they get exits? You know, that kind of stuff, that took as much engineering as the actual elevator. And we figured out, I'll give you an example. When we were working on the Earth elevator, we built almost 20 robots to climb up and down string. Mm-hmm. Well, for us, this climbing up and down string was the science that we needed to get out of it. Uh, but we realized that if we had a high-altitude platform, a large set of balloons, truck-sized balloons tethered to the ground, that those those become useful tools. They become commercially viable tools for communications and observation, right? So that's a, that's a spinoff that we're kind of working towards. We've got a couple other spinoffs that we're working towards. The, those things become you know revenue generators for the company as well as could be entirely new spinoff companies mm-hmm. that we don't need that tech anymore. We're happy to commercialize it and hand it to somebody else with a lot of our IP. So that has taken as much, as much effort as the engineering side. Uh, we have a list of products and services we'd like to develop specifically for Space Force that whether the elevator gets built or not, this revenue stream should be significant enough to to defray and mitigate a lot of the risk. I think we've got a good plan. I guess that's what I'm saying. I think we've got a good plan. We've got good tech. Finally, after literally 20 years of working on this, it finally looks like all the parts are starting to come together. Terrific. And we're looking forward to seeing your... You sort of, you know, your your offering that you mentioned, as well as the potential news and always you mentioned. So as as we're sort of coming towards the the end here, so just talking beyond elevators again, you've been involved with space for a long time. You've seen a lot. You've met a lot of people. You've seen the ecosystem evolve. So I just want to ask you a couple of general questions around that. So where we are right now, 2021, with all of the stuff that's going on, Starships, Starlink, Blue Origin, probably about to fly tourists, and tons of new space startups, a lot of money flowing into space in the forms of venture capital, but also the, all of the SPAC transactions. How do you feel about new space, what we call new space these days right now? And what, what do you find exciting? What excites you the most? First of all, the phrase new space is, I don't know, 15 <laughs> years old. And it's, it re- feels really the wrong word anymore. We, like, need, a, we need another, we need a new, a new, we need a new word. So, you know, hats, hats off to Tomlinson and his crew at the Space Frontier Foundation and all those pioneers and, and advocates. But that language doesn't work anymore. So it's just space now, new space, old space. That doesn't that doesn't work. I like to think of it as a spectrum. I've been thinking about it as a risk space on one side and safe space on the other. So Liftport's very much in the risk space. The earliest days of SpaceX and Blue were on the risk side. Earliest days of NanoRacks and and Made in Space and Tethers. Those were all, you know, basically self-funded 
visionary dreams, but then they would get a contract. They'd mm. get another contract, usually NASA, but not always, Air Force sometimes. Mm-hmm. They get another contract and they get another contract. And the more they moved from the risk space to safe space, the bigger they became, the more contracts they became, they got, the more the more long-term revenues, predictable revenues they got, and the more likely they are to be gobbled up by either a SPAC or a, a roll-up company. Right. So they're starting they're starting in this risk space environment and incrementally moving towards this safe environment. You know, I would I would say that most companies these days are hybrids. They're they're somewhere in this spectrum of risk versus space versus safe. And the closer they get to the the safe side, the more likely they are to be purchased or or rolled up into another technology or or acquired. So I think that evolution has been amazing. I've been I've certainly been honored to be a part of it and pushing that evolution. This is not the world I expected to be in 20 years ago when I started. So mm-hmm. it took longer than I thought, but now that it's here, you know, to use a Silicon Valley phrase, there's an inflection point. I think it's unstoppable at this point that, you know, yeah, uh, I agree. 3 3 billion dollars. What, what what are your numbers? 3 billion dollars in the last 6 months have pushbacks? Yeah. I was actually, I mean, when I when I showed you that calculation, um, it's actually more. It was um, it was 4.1 okay. uh, in the sort of eight eight spec transactions over. Well, basically since Virgin Galactic, which wasn't even the first SPAC transaction, because if you remember actually Iridium, when it came back, that was actually done via SPAC. But if we start with Virgin Galactic, we're about $4.1 billion. And you may have seen there was another, there was arguably another space company SPAC announced, merger announced today. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really is, it really is pretty astounding. I think that, you know, extraordinary wealth that's been created in the crypto community is starting to move into space as well. I think mm-hmm. that's going to yeah. start happening. I think there's a whole lot of capital that's starting to move into orbit one way one way or another. And but unintended, or li- literally, actually. Yeah, yeah literally. Yes. I wasn't meaning it as a pun. I was like, right. literally. literally. Like, there's a lot of capital moving into orbit right now. I'm kind of glad projects like Mars One failed because I think that, and, and I know that that's an yeah, that's that, that, that's yet another episode. Yeah, no, I, 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 I point to it. <laughs> we can talk. We can talk about space and well, actually, I should well, definitely no, do an episode but, on space entertainment. I, I point to these failures as necessary in the ecosystem, right? Yeah. And that um, because this is a hard business to be in, uh, it takes tenacity and and commitment. And sometimes it takes a long time. You know, I I don't think there are going to be, it's not like building an app in Silicon Valley, right? It's not like you feed a bunch of... Oh yeah, it's not like you're going to fail within like, you know, uh, fail fast and it's this failing fast means with basically during the time you're in Y Combinator basically within a few weeks. Right. Yeah. No, it's not not like that. It's not like that. So so let me ask you another question sort of along similar lines, which is... um, is there anything else you can think of that's similar to space elevators in the way that it's a technology that people have thought about for a long time that has inherent advantages, but maybe people got turned off or stopped looking because there was what seemed to be insurmountable technological obstacles and they've been sort of forgotten, but that may now be that we now may be able to actually resurrect because technologies have advanced. Is there anything else you can think of? 
So I got into space because of space-based solar power. Like that's the huh. reason I got into it. Uh, There's another episode. <laughs> yeah, no, there. I've, and then yeah. there'll be Coyote Smith. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I mean, really, truly, I got into this because of that technology. If you can power 300 of the biggest cities in the world, you can power 40% of the global population with clean, mm. green, limitless energy. I think that is. I think that's a, a goal worth striving. For. Agreed. And, and so that was my first thing I was going to do in space uh, before elevators. And I chose elevators because the costs of rocketry, the technology of rocketry simply wasn't up to the task of space-based solar power. Mm -hmm. So now, whether you're using elevators and raw material from the moon to build space-based solar power, which I think we're going to do, or whether you've got low-cost, high-volume rocketry that is able to start building these mammoth systems from the Earth, either way, that technology is about to happen. And I think... I think I think that technology is going to happen way faster than people uh, yeah. expect. And I, say, I, I tend to agree. Yeah, I'd, I'd say there's one other that actually, in the way, in the same way that singularity, or sorry, in the same way that starship, I call it the starship singularity. That's that's a phrase I use a lot. In, in the same way that the starship singularity may make the Earth elevator obsolete. So small backyard nuclear power systems may make space-based solar power obsolete, mm. right? Distributed local power with local nukes. I, I think that technology may make the space-based solar power dream evaporate. You know, the, the, it's going to be a race between can you build a gigawatt system in space that can power Nairobi or can you build lots of megawatt systems, 100 megawatt systems in the suburbs of Seattle, right? I think, th I think that's a race of technology and, and there's value to both. So I, I think the space-based solar power might be on the horizon. I think the tech is there, the rocketry is there, the robotics is there, and the materials are there. But locally, there's a good reason to build a local system in your backyard. Okay, there's so many questions I could <laughs> ask about this now, but then we're going to be up on our two hours. So this, this is going to have to, be, have to be another episode too. So let me let me finish up how I always finish up. And it's funny because the way I always finish up, as as you may have seen from previous episodes, is on, on science fiction. And funnily enough, we, we actually already made quite a few references just during our talk, just because elevators have appeared in various places in science fiction. So we already mentioned um, uh, John Scalzi, mm -hmm. and uh, that's where the elevator appears, is in a book called Old Man's War. And we mentioned Kim Stanley Robinson, and that's the Mars Trilogy, and it appears in Red Mars. And uh, for those of you who haven't read these books yet and you like science fiction, go and read those books. They're very good books. Um, but the question to you, Michael, is um, why well, I'm going to guess from our conversation so far, you do like science fiction, and what, what else do you like? Um, what are some other works? And it could be, it doesn't have to be books, by the way. It can be. Yeah, TV no, or, no, I, I'm a big movies. Nerd. I, I'm I'm a big nerd, so uh, I, I think I'm pretty up on on pop culture stuff. You know, I uh, I don't have a lot of stuff on my desk. Well, right now I have a lot of stuff on my desk, but usually I don't have a lot of stuff on my desk. But I have um, I have a couple artifacts, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna show them to you, and I'll describe them on screen. So let me just carefully pick this up. So uh, so I have two books. I see. Machiavelli, The Prince. That's that's the not Prince science fiction. And, uh, and Don, Don Quixote. Yes. And I have the Millennium Falcon, the Wright Flyer. That's the original Wright oh, yes. model. Mm -hmm. 
And then I have a bunch of uh, Dungeons and Dragons dice on my on my desk. So this is a this is a display I keep right in front of me all the time uh, as kind of a reminder of where we're going, where we've come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely a believer in kind of the Star Trek Starfleet future. I like Star Wars. I like you know. So I like. I, I'm a big movie guy. I'm a big movie nerd. I I reread a lot of stuff for the lessons in them. Um, uh, Bio of a Space Tyrant is is one I read pretty re- regularly. I, I read a lot of Heinlein. I. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moon is a Harsh Mistress. That's uh, fantastic um, work. Star, Starship Troopers. Yeah, I'm a former U.S. Marine. By the way, I really, really wish they had named Space Force correctly as Space Corps, right? That should have been named Space Corps. And they should have used naval ranks for their their uh, their guardians. I like guardians, by the way. They named they mm-hmm. named the, the 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 folks guardians. I think that's pretty good. As a guardians of the galaxy. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's um, so so sci-fi really did kind of force me to look in space. I I, I show I, I have these you know in this case eight side dice on my desk. I got into space because of my best friend. Actually, we grew up in the Puget Sound area near Seattle. My high school looked over a big chunk of the naval fleet of the West Coast, U.S. Uh, naval fleet. Those were the Cold War days when it was pretty warm. And anybody who grew up in that went to that high school knew that they would never know when World War III started because we were going to be vaporized. We were a first strike target. And here's my nerdy best friend and I playing Dungeons and Dragons. And we've got all this graph paper. And one day, I don't remember who started it, but one day we're like, how would you build a bunker that survived a hit? And everything that we came up with, he was a, he was more engineering. I was more on the social side, but everything that we would come up with, we draw out these really elaborate things. And then the other guy, the other nerd would try to figure out how to, um, how to break their bunker. Right. And everything that we came up with, I mean, this is the ninth grade for me not very sophisticated 10th grade 11th grade for me not very sophisticated but everything that we came up with was just a bad plan and that's when um the movie uh war games came out with a very early early 80s yeah very young yep yep and and one of the lines in there is the only way to win is not to play right Mm. uh thermonuclear war the only way to win is not to play and so we're like you know what we can't make a bunker that the other guy can't destroy that's actually how it is in the world let's go to space so we started looking at how could you build space stations uh, you know, human crewed space stations. And it's ridiculous now to think about the things that we did back then, but all of that generated is was generated by pop culture ideas at the time. And that's, that's why, this is precisely why I, I always finish up on this question, because I do think it's, it has a much more important role than, than people realize in inspiring people and, and then thereby shaping our future. Yeah. But so Michael, it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on. And best of luck with with Liftport and the projects. And maybe we'll have another episode in in August or September. (laughs) I would like that. All right, cool. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore 
space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.